We have a fresh book this morning, so turn into Colossians. is a new study that we're going to pick up. And here's why we're in Colossians. For those of you who've been around for a little bit, we are really in a journey through the book of Acts. So two years ago in September, we started this journey through the book of Acts. And my heart as we began is that as we traveled through the Acts of God, through him establishing his church and sending the gospel out into different communities, that as we encountered different communities where we had letters written to those communities, that we'd pause our study in Acts and we'd go and dig into to learn the character, what's going on in these communities, to just really bolster that study that's going on in the book of Acts. So as we've traveled through Acts, before Acts, the the first chapters, those first eight chapters, the emphasis is definitely upon Peter and what God is doing through Peter. So before we left Peter's life, we studied first and second Peter. As, As Acts transitions into following Paul's life in Acts chapter nine, Uh, We've gone through Philippians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, as we are officially, we finished Acts chapter 19, which is dealing with the community of Ephesus. That is why we went and studied 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and studied Revelation because John was a pastor in Ephesus for an extended period of time, and all of those documents are written to that community. And this is why also before we shift back into Acts chapter 20, we're going to pause and go through Colossians and Philemon because Colossians is a sister city to Laodicea. So as we just studied Revelation extensively, um, Laodicea is one of those seven churches. Colossians is that sister city. We'll see as we go through Colossians that Paul told this letter to be read to the Laodicean church, and a letter that Paul wrote to the Laodicean church was supposed to be read to the Colossian church. So that's what's bringing us here. That's why we're sitting in Colossians. So when it comes to this document, this is a short letter. We're going to go through the first 20 verses this morning. We're going to read through it all at once, and we'll back up and get the full flavor of what Paul is speaking to this community. So let's read. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ Jesus who are in Colossae, or Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of what you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it has also in all the world, and is bringing forth fruit, as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God and truth, as you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, 
strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of, his son, of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the, the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And Paul continues, take a breath. Did you get all that? One of the, one of the commentaries, the, the guy said that Paul is a theological genius. And I just sat in that, that just one phrase is a title for Paul. And I just, I just amen that statement. I mean, like, seriously, we're going we're gonna to travel through this and we'll bring context and we'll pull out application and everything that he is conveying. But he is just pouring out of his relationship with the Lord and his relationship with other brothers and sisters. He is just pouring out Jesus from his mind, heart, and soul as he pens this letter. And as we sit in, in Paul, we're not going to, we've already looked at his life. Most of you have studied Paul's life in, in depth in one context or another. But Paul is this guy who had a hatred for Jesus. And all that Jesus stood for as the Messiah, Je Paul was one of those men of that man will not rule over me. Jesus is not the promised Messiah. Until he had an encounter on a road to Damascus where Jesus Christ broke him. He revealed himself, unveiled himself, gave Paul a very specific vision that blinded him, that humbled him, that humiliated him, and that caused him to um, ultimately have a... I, I, What's the word? Just an undeniable encounter with his creator on this road. And as he's sitting for the next few days, fasting in prayer and in his blindness, Jesus is there speaking to him. Spoke to him on that road. I am Jesus who, are, who you are persecuting. Confronted him and broke him and spoke to him and gave him promises, sends a brother into his life so that he can receive his sight back with the promise that I want, to, I want you, Ananias, you're going to communicate to him as Jesus was communicating to Paul all the things that he was going to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. And as you travel with Paul through Acts, you travel with Paul through his letters, you see what a radical relationship the, that he had with our God and our Savior. And again, this is, something, this is something that God created Paul for, equipped him for his entire life, whether he knew it or not, and called him and anointed him and appointed him to be this apostle. An apostle, it's a, it's a witness. 
He is there to give testimony that he has seen the glorified, resurrected Jesus and all of his glory and who he is, that he has been given all of this incredible revelation in regards to who he is and is going from community to community as commissioned by the Lord, proclaiming this singular message. Paul says uh, to the Corinthians specifically, but as he enters into every single community, his sole purpose is for that community to see Jesus and to see Jesus crucified. To know that our God dwelt in this flesh, took on our image so that he could die and suffer for our sins. And that sacrifice was acceptable and pleasing to God the Father as evidenced by the power of Jesus' resurrection, as evidenced by his ascension, as evidenced by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This is the message and the life that Paul is sitting in. And he's not sitting in it in isolation. As he's gone from community to community, and Lystra is where he met Timothy, and Timothy started journeying with him there. So Timothy is a, you know, he's seen as the guy who is actually writing all of this stuff with Paul. But this letter is seen as the Holy Spirit moving upon Paul's mind and his heart as he's reaching out to this community for a very specific reason that we're going to get into. So here it's to the church, the saints, those who have been made holy, those who have been made faithful in Jesus Christ. We are brethren. We are brothers and sisters, siblings in Christ. But they're in this community of Colossae. Yeah, this is, uh, um, you can get on Google and you can see a picture of it. Uh, this city is just a mound of dirt today and it's never been ex excavated. So the information that we know about it in history and from this time is from writings from others that were speaking about this city. But it's not, it's not a backwater town, but it's an insignificant town at this time. Laodicea is a sister city. It's about 10 miles away. Hierapolis is to the north about, you know, in, the, in this circle, you're talking about like a 20-mile radius that you can, again, again, modern-day Turkey, you can go and get a snapshot. But here, our understanding is that Paul never visited this community. So in all of Paul's travels, this, this was not one of the places where he stopped. This is not one of the places where he shared the gospel. And we see our understanding is that Epaphras is the man who shared the gospel. So look at, um, we're going to look at this guy just a little bit. But chapter 4, verse 12, as Paul is giving these final greetings to the church, he says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, a slave of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has great zeal for you and for those who are in Laodicea and those in Hierapolis. And then go back to chapter 1. And this statement, it's in verse 7, that you, though the church in Colossae, you learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. So the narrative that the commentators put together is that probably while Paul was in Ephesus for an extended period of time, he was there for almost three years, that that would have been the time that Epaphras would have heard the gospel. And as that man was saved, heard the gospel, he took that message into his community where he was from. 
And this is how the gospel was shared with this community. So that's the narrative that we put together, whether it was he was the first one or not. It's clear that he is a minister in this community in Jesus' name. And this is where I wanted to kind of pause on him and we'll move from Paul and just spend a little bit of time in Epaphras. And you just look at the definitions of this guy's life. That he was a servant. As, as a leader, he was a servant. His whole concern, his zeal and his passion was for the community that he was a part of. God placed that community on his heart, his hometown, that when he heard the gospel, he said, my family needs to hear this. My friends need to hear this. My community needs to hear the gospel. And he is continually, from whatever point of time that was, to this current time that Paul is writing this letter, and he's writing it from a prison cell, that Epaphras has been this faithful laborer with Paul in the gospel, and that Paul's testimony in regards to Epaphras' life, is, as Paul has had an interaction with him, it's like, this guy doesn't shut up about you. In my interaction with, with him, all he is conveying to me is how you have responded to the gospel, your love for Jesus, your love for your brothers and sisters in Christ, your diligence in following him. He has a zeal that you would grow and mature. As I listen to this man pray, Paul is saying, I hear him praying that you would grow, that you would be full in Jesus, that you would grow in that maturity, that you would know him and understand him and follow him. This is when we talk about leadership and the body of Christ, it doesn't matter where you are leading. We are commanded to have the heart of Christ, and that's the heart of a servant as we are leading and serving other people. And again, there's, there's a lot of the younger generation in here, teenagers. How do you, as a servant, lead in the midst of your peers? And again, we can take a snapshot from Epaphras' heart that God's given you love for your friends, yeah? For your schoolmates, for your coworkers, for those in your neighborhood, for those in your household. What are your prayers for them? Often in our insecurities, we're more focused on ourselves. Like, what are people seeing about me? What are they saying about me? What do they think about me? That kind of stuff. Listen to the prayers uh, that we're going to go through of Paul this morning. We can sit in the prayers of Epaphras for his community. They are solely that those individuals would know Jesus. The teens, elementary school students, junior high students, college age, young adults, what do your prayers look like? You that are old and seasoned in the Lord, what do you pray for as you pray for other people? Just for their health and wealth and comfort? Are you praying, I want, Lord, I want that person to know Jesus because that is the only thing that matters. Your life circumstance, I leave in the hands of God because your life circumstance could be hell on earth or it could be the highest mountain of blessing, regardless of what your life circumstance looks like and everything in between, God is in control of your life. Yes? Or am I? Or are you? You listen to the prayers. You listen to those who faithfully have served you in your relationship with God. What have they done for you? How have they served you? How have they prayed for you? 
How have they helped you mature? How have they helped you see Jesus from their life experience and their perspective in light of the truth of the word of God? This is Epaphras. He's a great example that we only have a little snapshot from. But the snapshot, literally, what what are you praying for? It's going to be an awesome snapshot of what you have going on in your heart, what you're asking God for, because out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Your fears, your anxieties, your trust, your faith, your maturity, your lack thereof, out of your heart, your mouth speaks. Out of your heart as you're praying with God, as God dwells in you, we are told that he gives us his mind, that the spirit of God is the one who is leading us in our prayers according to his will and for his glory. He'll sit in Romans 8. It is the spirit of God praying through us. He is the one that is leading our minds and our hearts as we have a conversation with him. Out of your heart, that, that transformed heart, the heart that you have been given, out of your heart, you speak. And may our hearts speak like this example that we have from Epaphras and Paul as we're going to sit in his prayer and ultimately out of the heart of Jesus that he has given to us. And look at what Paul does. So as he is... He's received news about the community in Colossae from, from Epaphras. And the, the occasion, the reason that Paul is writing is because there's false doctrine. We're warned about false doctrine from Jesus and, and all, almost, not almost. I mean, you hear it from Peter, you hear it from Jude, you hear it from James, you hear it from John, you hear it from Paul. We are constantly warned in regards to false teachings creeping their way into the church. In Colossae, we don't know what exactly the false teaching is, but it revolves around the philosophies of men. It revolves around a a pretend religion as though um, you're adhering through uh, specific behaviors that you're going to make yourself holy and righteous. And there's some carnality going on in this community that as we get into chapter 2, we're going to see all these different circumstances circumstances come out. So this is why Paul is writing. But before he gets into any of the issues, look at, look at Paul is hearing that the gospel has gone into a community that he never visited. And he, does, he has zero jealousy. Which often, one of, one of the, uh, I think it was one of the guys said it at, this, at the conference, but there's so many times, and in fact, we've been talking about it in Luke, too, as Jesus is telling us not to be divided and to have sectarianism of, I'm of Paul, you're of Apollos. If, you know, here's people preaching Jesus over here, but if they're not from us, then we need to shut them up because I don't have control and authority over them. Like, we're warned about that heart repeatedly in the Bible. But here, Paul hears about another community where the gospel went, where he wasn't the church planter, so to say. What's his heart for this community? It's not be swept underneath my authority. Listen, look at the gratitude that he expresses. And he's giving thanks to God. He is praying always for this community. The Father and Lord of our Jesus Christ, all these definitions. But in this, we're going to kind of take these, these verses backwards. Because ultimately, as, as Epaphras heard... The grace of God in truth. It's the grace of God. That's, like, that's the initial interaction that we have with our God. It's according to his grace. He gives to us what we do not deserve. And ultimately what he has given to us, he's giving himself. 
And his heart, his actions are constantly based upon his outward workings of grace in our life. But his grace, it's according to truth. His gift of grace ultimately is sending his son. So as Jesus comes in the fullness and all this imagery that we just, we're going to talk about in a minute, as Jesus is God who empties himself of his Godhood to take on this flesh and comes to the nation of Israel, what's he doing? He's imaging the Father. He is revealing God's grace. But ultimately, it says he's proclaiming this good news, the gospel of the kingdom of God, the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. And again, here it says in truth, that through Epaphras, this community heard about God's grace. The God who created the heavens and the earth, they heard of his grace. And the message, the content of that grace is wrapped up into the gospel. The word of the gospel which is true in Jesus, right? This is the source of all of this information. But what does he convey? That when they heard the gospel, what welled up within their hearts is Jesus is planting the seed of his word in their hearts. What woke up was hope. What he says, it's because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. And this is usually... The, the promises that God gives to us, as he reveals himself to us, he gives us this incredible confidence for the future. I have a hope that when I fall asleep in this body, that I'm immediately going to see my creator. And that's a hope that's been conveyed to me through the gospel. I have a hope today that I have been cleansed from all of my past present, and future sins. Like, I'm clean. We live, in a, we live in a time right now with COVID, you know, anybody that sneezes, you want to say, I'm clean. And we can look at ourselves in the mirror and the, the things that we think about, the things that escape our lips, those behaviors that we, our judgments, whatever they may be, and I can, I can point at myself in the image of Christ. I'm unclean. Fix me, change me, transform me. Is anybody with me here? I have this, we have this hope through the gospel. You are purged of all of your unrighteousness, of all of your filth. Today, you stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ through faith in him. You stand in the presence of your God and your father, your creator. Is that hope? We sang multiple lyrics today. Through the gospel, you have been given the hope that God is with you, that he sees you, that he knows you, that he loves you. Right? And again, it's not just you enter into the sanctuary of the Lord and God is with you. When you woke up this morning, you did your daily routine, you're here. When you leave here, for all eternity, the being who created you through faith in Jesus Christ is with you. He will never abandon you. You are not an orphan. You are a child of the God who created the heavens and the earth. And the hope, I used to be a child of wrath. I used to be a child of disobedience. I'm a child of God. Does that cause hope? And it's through that hope that wells up faith, faith in Jesus. It's through that hope that wells up a growing and just crescendoing love for your God and not only for him, but love for others. 
Because what's Paul saying that he's given thanks to God for? The moment I heard of your faith in Jesus Christ, the moment I heard that you love your brothers and sisters in Christ, the moment I heard that you have hope in Christ, the moment I heard that you responded to the good news of the gospel, the moment that I heard that you've responded to God's grace in your life, I have not ceased giving thanks to God for you. That he chased you down, that he woke you up, that he sent another man and other women into your community to proclaim this truth and information. If you notice this too, as we sit in these words, what's in there? Faith, hope, and love. And where do you know that those three words are all coupled together? Come on, church. All right, turn to 1 Corinthians 13 because you don't know it. You can't talk about these three words without coming to Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to read through this quickly. But as we talk about their love for the saints, that Epaphras is communicating to him their love in the spirit of God. As he communicates a little later on when it talks about uh, that Jesus is the son of the father's love. We want to sit in the definition, God's definition of what love is. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but I have not love, I become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. That's an extremely high elevation to place love upon. So we get into verse 4 here. There's a standard teaching of replace the word love with the name of Jesus. You can also replace the word love with your own name and, and see how he's transformed you and imprinted his love upon your heart and is also showing us how much further we have to go. As we're sitting in the context of Colossians, we can put this congregation in this, in this word also as Paul is hearing about their love. But listen to the definition. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It's not puffed up. It does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own. It's not provoked thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity and sin, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, praise God. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, in other words, when Jesus comes, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now, 
we see in a mirror dimly. Here's one of my favorite promises we talked about last week. But then, face to face. For now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. What a promise. And now abide faith, hope, and love. Those three words that Paul is praising and thanking God for in the Colossian church. And that we are praising God that's part of our congregation. Faith abides. Hope, confident expectation in the promises of God abides. Love, sacrificial love abides. These three. But the greatest of these is love. So back to Colossians. Paul is saying that he's heard from Epaphras about their love. Epaphras is declaring to him and to others their love in the Spirit. And it's that reason, their love. And again, this is being defined as the love of Jesus Christ in them and through them, as we just read through in 1 Corinthians 13. It's this is the reason why Paul, since the day he heard this, he's not ceasing to pray for all of them. And then again, look at his prayers. This is the falsehood that's in this congregation is an early form of Gnosticism. And Gnosticism is essentially saying that there's, there's this private, secret knowledge about God that you need to get from me. And that as you are educated and given knowledge by me, usually through your obedience to me and my little hierarchy that I'm going to create, then I will reveal to you the secret knowledge that you need to have a true and vibrant relationship with God. And continually through the word of God, God says that is from the pit of hell. Paul is praying for every single individual believer in this community. And this is for each individual here that you personally would experientially know your God. He is the one who is the source of wisdom. He is the one who is the source of spiritual understanding. You do not need any man, any woman, any religion to have access to God, all you need is a relationship with Jesus. And he promises to give to you his mind, his wisdom, his understanding. He promises that as you follow him, as you sit in the truth of the word, as you pursue him and engage him every day, he promises he is going to take you through life experience that is going to enable you to know him. And this isn't the content of what you know. This is you have experienced your God in this life. Nobody, there is not a single human being or circumstance that can come into my life to take away my knowledge, my experiential knowledge that Jesus is the God of gods, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. Because he has walked with me for over 20 years and he has continually spoken to me and revealed himself to me where it is beyond a shadow of doubt in my life, Jesus is and he is coming. That's this knowledge that's being given. Now, I have had many men and women teach me and instruct me and convey to me their life experiences. You, in our congregation, just every conversation we have, 
you're pointing to me, your experience, your understanding as you're walking alongside of the Lord, and I love it. But here's the, here's the main thing that Paul's going to get into. There's these false teachings in this community. There's false teachings in our community. We can get bogged down in all these different areas of religion and man's traditions and man's commands that have nothing to do with your relationship with God. Paul's prayer is for you. My prayer is for you. Your prayer ought to be for me and for all of us, that each one of us, through the Spirit of God, that you would have the mind of God. He is the source of the wisdom that you need. He is the source of understanding. Like, Lord, I don't get it. He is the source that is going to cause you to get what you need to know in that moment. And he is going to be the one that's going to provide the experience that you need to constantly grow and mature in him. The different offices that we have in the church, the different gifts that are given to men and women, we are told in Ephesians 4, the purpose of those gifts is for all of our training and our equipping, our being built up in the body of Christ in unity together until all of us stand. And there's coming a day when we're all going to be in complete, perfect maturity and fullness in the body of Christ together. But that's what this prayer is for, that you today, that you'd mature that you'd grow in your relationship and all of this wisdom. And then again, out of that information, that you'd live, that you'd walk in a way that is worthy of Jesus Christ. Is your daily life worthy to be followed as an example as unto the Lord? It can be. Paul says, I want you follow me as I follow Jesus. Not so that I can have authority over you, but God's done a work in my life. He's appointed me. He's commissioned me. And I'm aimed at Jesus in all ways. As I am following the Lord, my life is an example for you to follow the Lord. Is that because Paul is some super saint? Paul had all the struggles you have. And Paul has the same relationship with Jesus Christ that you have. Paul is a wonderful example of a man whose faith you can follow. A trustworthy life. God caused that to be my life and caused that to be your life. That as you handle my life, as you handle the life of my wife, the life of my children, the life of my in-laws, my parents, our congregation that you'd be trustworthy with the lives that the Lord allows you to rub shoulders with, to sharpen. You hear that prayer? I'm praying that you would walk worthy of Jesus Christ. And this isn't something that we well up in our own strength. What's his next prayer? I'm praying that God is the one who makes you able that he is the one that enables, gives you the strength to do exactly what he's called you to do. Anybody overwhelmed today? Anybody have an insane schedule in life? Anybody have so many balls in the air that you feel like you're juggling that if I drop one, that, oh no? I, gotta, I have a crazy life. I have a good life. I have a content life. I have a secure life. Because this God has promised me, Blake, I am going to give you the power, the energy, 
the diligence. I'm going to give you what you need to accomplish what I'm telling you to do. I don't know about you. I have to trust in that promise every single day because I sit in my list of stuff. And when I put my head on the pillow every single night, I have a mountain of things that are undone. There is always more work to do. There is always another conversation to have. There is always more God's word to study. There's always more prayers to convey to God. There is always more. So why is it that I can put my head on content with all this life undone? Because I trust that he leads me faithfully every day. God, you lead me. I'll trust that I will accomplish for you according to your will what you're directing me to do today. What gets left undone, it's all in your hands anyways. You're the one that is causing me to be worthy. You are the one that is causing me to be sufficient of your inheritance. You are the one that has brought your incredible light into my life. You are the one that has removed me out of darkness. It's what this prayer all revolves around. Jesus, you are worthy. And when you look at the, he starts to preach the gospel when he starts talking about Jesus, that he's conveyed us, he's transferred us into the kingdom of the son of his love. It's in Jesus that we have redemption, which means that we've been bought out of our slavery. We've been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. Through him, we have the forgiveness of sins, but this title that Jesus is the son of his love. So again, as he, as he shifted into, uh, as he mentioned Epaphras' testimony of their love in the spirit, he shifted into this prayer. As he starts, the minute that he says about uh, uh, that Jesus is the son of God's love, he immediately shifts into declaring all of the... This is, a, this is a, the commentaries call this a hymn that Paul is breaking out into a spiritual song as he proclaims all of these incredible truths about Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Yes or no? Think about the statement. He is the imprint of the invisible God. We're told in this passage that it is Jesus who created the heavens and the earth. Is Jesus just a man? He had flesh and bones just like we did. But we're given this, you know, John chapter 1, that, that Jesus, the word of God, who was with God in the beginning, that Jesus is the one who tabernacled. He took on this flesh, this tent as the invisible God, we are told that he emptied himself of his godhood. Philippians tells us he didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God, and he became just like us, taking on our image. And as he took on our image, he taught us, he walked here, he died for our sins, he rose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven. And we are told through faith in him that as the Holy Spirit, the Almighty God, Father, Son, and Spirit takes up dwelling, tabernacling within each one of us, that his work in our life is to create his image in us. Because there's coming a day and a promise in the future when we will perfectly image him. 
So again, when Paul is talking about that he is the image of the invisible God, there's a lot of theology. There's a lot of truth and revelation that he is conveying in this. But again, ultimately, he's pouring out Jesus is the source of it all. He is the head of the body, which is the church, gives him this title that he is the firstborn over all creation. That does not mean that he was created. Firstborn is a title of status and privilege in this culture. It doesn't mean first in order of time. It means first in status. He is the firstborn. He is over all of creation. The Father has placed all things into the authority of the Son. By him, all things are created. doesn't matter what it is. It says all things, again, created, they're created through him. The reason everything exists is for him. He is before. He is first of all things. In him, all things consist today. He is the one holding everything together. Pretty incredible declaration in regards to who he is. Why? This uh, verse, the last section there, last sentence of verse 18 so that he can have the preeminence of everything. And this is, this is where we'll end this morning, and we'll pick up the narrative next week. But this, just this whole idea that Jesus is to be preeminence, that he is to be first. This is in all things. What does all mean? I just, just sit in that a minute and sits in the history of your morning today. Is Jesus why you got up? Let it be so. What you chose to eat this morning, or not eat, let him be first. Give thanks to God for what you eat, what he provides for you. Do you understand the privilege that it is and the variety of food that we have in our culture? That idea that Jesus is first, that he is our provider just in the simple thing of food is one of the things that transforms our hearts so that we will reach out and give to others. Is Jesus first in your mind as you put on your makeup and put on your clothes? Or is it what other people are going to think about you and their opinions of you? Was Jesus the first conversation that you had this morning? Was his truth the priority of where you want your mind to be this day. You've demonstrated it in action. Your, your choice of activities this morning, this is your first thing, to come in and worship God in thanksgiving with your brothers and sisters. Is he first in your mind as you're going to hang out with one another in your conversations? What are you going to talk about with your brothers and sisters? Is Jesus first in that? You start to get the idea of preeminence. Like he, he's over everything. He's worthy. He's trustworthy. He's the source. He's walking. He's the one that makes us worthy. He's the one that's revealed his grace to us. We've responded to his gospel. He gives us faith. He gives us love. He gives us hope. Understand the crescendo of this section? It's, it's awesome. At the time that Paul's writing this letter to the Colossians, he's been a follower of Jesus. Depending on which prison in, 
uh, he's part of. He could be in prison in Ephesus, a Caesarea, or Rome in his journeys. He's probably in Rome, which means he's getting ready to have his head cut off. This is in the early 60s, which means he's been following Jesus for about 30 years. And look at the Jesus that pours out of his mouth through the Holy Spirit onto this paper that we have before us today, an encouragement to the Colossian church that's an encouragement to us today. It's what the word of God is for. Paul is witnessing to us the invisible God. It is through these words we see that image. And it's through these words like, Lord, stamp that on my heart. Stamp it in my mind. Stamp it in my words. Amen? All right, worship team, get on up here. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are with us. And we're going to trust in that promise that is through faith in Jesus Christ that we get to boldly come before your throne of grace. We know you're here, Lord, but we're making a choice in our minds and our lives right now to come to you in unity in the name of Jesus, to worship you for your grace, to worship you for the gospel, Lord, which is your power for salvation in our lives. We're thankful, Lord, for the hope that you've given to us, all of those promises that you, Lord, that you force us to trust you, that you take our hearts of hatred and jealousy and bitterness and you place within us an incredible love for you, a love for our brothers and sisters, a love for even those who are your enemies, Lord, because we want nothing more than to know you and to make you known. We're praying, Lord, through today and through the days coming ahead, as long as you tarry, Lord, until that day that you come back, that you give us the power that we need to grow in our knowledge of you, our experience of you. Cause us, Lord, to, to not be children, but to continue to grow into that that maturity, Lord, those, those childish thoughts, those childish ways that we put those things aside and that we grow into men and women in unity and love who are imaging you. Make it to be so, Lord. And at the same time, don't let us be puffed up in any way. Keep in our, our hearts that faith of a child. We trust you. We love you. And we celebrate your sacrifice, your body that was given for the remission of our sins. We celebrate your blood that was shed for us, Lord, that brings about the forgiveness of our sins, this new covenant and new heart and new life. We worship you. We love you. We honor you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.